Hey pals, welcome to The Culture Journalist. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. It is hard to believe that we are already at the last episode of our third season. It continues to be a strange and delightful ride. We're about to take a short postseason break, but our work doesn't stop. We'll be back soon to bring you more of the goods we launched this season, including our monthly list of culture recommendations offline recs, essays, playlists, and, of course, podcast episodes. And we'll be throwing a few goodies your way in the meantime. This continues to be an entirely independent project, and we're grateful for your support. To keep making it possible, sign up for a paid subscription at theculturejournalist.substack.com. If you've signed up for our newsletter, you've probably noticed that the art for each of our recent installments has been a little bit surreal lately. For the last few months, we've been experimenting with a technology called MidJourney. It's an AI image generation tool and Discord bot that pulls visual data from all over the internet in order to generate original images from random combinations of words. If you want to, you can even choose to render these images in the style of one of the artists whose works you have to memorize back in Art History 101. For our episode with Mark Redito, one of the musicians behind a 77-person headless band called Chaos, we gave Midjourney the prompt, Headless Chaos, in the style of Giorgio de Chirico. After some trial and error, it spat out an image of a headless, neoclassical-looking figure that looked exactly like it had been painted by Giorgio de Chirico. And for Emily's recent essay about the decline of scene culture during the pandemic, we used the prompt, Post-Pandemic Hipsters, in the style of Salvador Dali which generated predictably ridiculous results. If you spend just a few minutes in the Midjourney Discord, it's not hard to see why hundreds of thousands of people have fallen down the same rabbit hole that we have since the project moved into open beta in July. Especially if you aren't a trained artist, the ability to use words to give life to an image or idea in your head, or at least create a beguilingly strange approximation of it, is nothing short of magical. Midjourney isn't the only research lab making tools with the potential to democratize visual image generation in this way. Unless you've been living under a rock this summer, you've probably heard of Dolly 2, a machine learning model from AI research giant OpenAI that takes a slightly different approach to summoning novel images from the internet ether. Dolly 2 has an amazing feature that allows you to explore what an image would look like, and even a famous painting like The Girl with the Pearl Earring, if you extended it beyond the frame. Separately, it's already responsible for some of this year's dumbest memes, like the Pugachu, a combination of a pug and Pikachu. But like with all technological and creative disruptions, these tools also raise big existential questions and concerns. We just told you about how we used Midjourney to create images in the style of De Kiriko and Dali, then use said images as artwork on our Substack, a project that makes its money from paid subscriptions. Those artists are no longer living, but these machine learning models source training data from all over the internet. What if we started making art in the style of a living artist without compensating them for their work? It's no surprise that tools like Dolly and Midjourney are creating something of a moral panic in the worlds of art, media, and design. 
Graphic designers and commercial artists are worried that AI will exacerbate the scourge of intellectual property theft that they've already been dealing with on the internet for years. Think brands aping imagery and graphic styles from niche Tumblr accounts. Art directors at major magazines are already penning op-eds about how they're worried that Dolly is going to put them out of a job. Beneath all the techno-optimism in the air, you can sense a kind of new culture war brewing. Is AI the beginning of a more egalitarian artistic future, or the terrifying final stage of a trajectory where corporations and developers find increasingly insidious ways to extract value from the creative class? To begin making sense of the economic, ethical, and artistic implications of these tools, we brought on one of our favorite guests, the artist and technologist Matt Dryhurst. You might remember Matt from our episode a while back explaining NFTs and their democratizing potential for independent music. Matt and his partner, the composer Holly Herndon, have been diving headfirst into the possibilities and pitfalls posed by AI for several years now. Most recently, they've launched Spawning, an organization building tools by and for artists working with AI. The idea is to give artists greater control over their AI training data by allowing them to opt in and out of these data sets, set permissions on how their style and likeness is used, and even offer their own models to the public. The goal, he says, is to establish a standard of consent honored by AI research companies as the tech, whether we like it or not, barrels into the future. Matt was kind enough to join us from Berlin to give us a crash course in the history of text-based image generation and the specific technological developments that led to this moment. From grassroots discord groups to Elon Musk-funded behemoths like OpenAI, to the nation-states incentivizing this growing research field on the geopolitical stage. We also discussed the changing nature of art and perceptions of artistic value in a world where everyone is able to create striking images at the push of a button. And we explore the possibilities and limitations of these tools as a medium for creative expression. And, of course, we get into the steps we can take now to avoid this becoming a nightmare scenario for artists or the start of an era of really terrible art for everyone else. And we are back, and we are so happy to have our returning guest, Matt Dryhurst. Matt, welcome back to The Culture Journalist. We're so stoked to have you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be back. I've really been enjoying my subscription to you all. And yeah, it's fun to come back and have something else to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So you and Holly have been saying for years that AI was going to bring about this massive shift in culture in our lifetime. And now that moment kind of seems to be here. We're seeing the first examples of these tools becoming mainstream, especially with Dali. What is surprising to you about how this is all playing out and what is less surprising? Yeah, good question. I mean, thus far, I haven't been surprised. Um, If I'm honest, which might make me sound insufferable, but things are going kind of how I expected. You know, we've been working with these machine learning systems for six or seven years quite intimately. And research has always kind of privileged the image over other media. And so it's no surprise to me that these kind of more sophisticated image generation systems are 
the ones that are taking the lead and that people are talking about. That said, uh, you know, you can never kind of tell what the moment is where people are going to start caring. And it turned out that moment was Dolly 2. And for good reason, right? Because the the Dolly 2 release, particularly in conjunction with the clip model, which came out a year prior, which is a, there's a whole kind of prehistory to this kind of prompted imagery that's that's maybe worth talking about. But the, the combination of clip labels, kind of the indexing of these images and data sets and these newer diffusion models for being able to generate images, it turns out that that combination is the thing that that really takes this stuff kind of intergalactic. So I can I can completely understand why people are all of a sudden taking it seriously because all of a sudden it goes from being like a theoretical, kind of a less tangible concern to being something that's very tangible, right? Like now you can type some words on your computer and produce some pretty cool images and it feels a little bit like like magic um it feels new right we published an essay about this that we called infinite images and the latent camera um kind of diving into some of the prehistory of this and why it feels new and probably where this stuff is going that i could recommend reading because it's way longer than what i'll say here but as i said if you if you've been involved in the field for some time i mean it, I was tweeting something Holly posted three years ago or whatever, where she was like, yeah, and the next thing is you'll be able to type and images will happen. You know, it's like, we've been saying this for a while, not to sound like a, you know, full of ourselves or anything, but I'm not, I'm not overly, overly surprised. If anything, I'm really grateful that there is a bit more of a public discourse about this because that's actually the basic conditions that we need to figure out what comes next. You know, all of a sudden now this is a large public discussion where there's far more people around the table than there were you know, five or six years ago. And just in terms of how we got to this point to begin with, this is, you know, obviously a broader topic, but for the unacquainted, can you give us a bit of background on the development of AI tech that surrounds visual media and art and expression versus like Amazon business solutions AI or something? Like who are some of the key players and what have been some major turning points that got us to where we are today? Yeah, sure. So we first started getting interested in it around about 2015, 2016. And the big breakthrough there was, of course, like there's kind of a hundred year history of people playing around with automation systems for different reasons, or, or, or and particularly in the realm of the arts. There's a very, very long prehistory of this. But around about 2015, what became more interesting was a lot of research organizations. So either uh, people working within organizations at the scale of Google or within universities started publishing open code. And the reason they were publishing open code was that all of a sudden you had these GPUs, right? Graphical processing units that you could use. A lot of people had them at home because a lot of people game or, you know, edit videos or create 3D assets or whatever with these very powerful systems. And so all of a sudden around about 2015, there was this huge amount of energy amongst technical researchers who had these GPUs at home and all of a sudden could run neural networks, could train neural networks using some of the code that was being released by these research institutions. And so that was what got us first excited about it, because all of a sudden at home we could play around and, and run some experiments. In terms of you know the timeline between then and now, what you've seen in many ways is kind of like, for, for want of a better term, like optimization. Like a lot of the techniques that were being played around with around 2015, 2016, working with GANs, working with kind of very primitive diffusion systems or whatever, things just got better as a result of a lot of researchers paying attention to things and a lot of research institutions 
kind of spotting the opportunity. There's just been a hell of a concentration in in the commercial and research community on making these systems better. And so every every couple of months since about 2016, there's been mini breakthroughs from thousands of researchers all over the world. And once one person makes that breakthrough, everyone's kind of basic tools get upgraded, right? And so you can go back and look at experiments happening there, let's say in image generation and Initially, you know, there were things like a style transfer, you know, the ability to read the kind of stylistic information of one image and apply it to another, right? Or the ability to kind of train again on, you know, images of dogs and then be able to come up with a novel image of a dog, right? You know, using some of these basic concepts over time, you can kind of generate anything. And so with more, for example, processing power, and just more researchers, you know, refining code, m- making these systems better. What we've seen is huge leaps every couple of months, and that's only going to accelerate. That's only going to continue. Google has been a significant player in this space. They have their DeepMind labs, but they also have in the music side, for example, the Magenta Lab and the Magenta team, who we've collaborated with in the past, and are great. Around about that time, too, Sam Altman, Elon Musk, and others started OpenAI and as a kind of dedicated research organization that has very, very close relationship with Microsoft. And OpenAI has also like, you know, dedicated so much research time, resources, and also compute toward improving these systems. You know, OpenAI is where GPT-3 comes from, right? OpenAI is where some of these diffusion techniques come from. It's where Clip comes from that, that is kind of the underpinning of a lot of these image-prompted systems. There's a couple of Chinese companies who are also in the space. Meta, Facebook is in the space. And there's, you know, more recently kind of open source organizations like Hugging Face or Stability AI, which is where Stable Diffusion comes from, that have kind of entered the game. So yeah, there's now like thousands, if not tens of thousands of researchers working on this all the time. And it's turned into a really massive kind of scene with, with a lot of energy and a lot of ideas and increasingly a lot of capital kind of flying around. And so in our mind, it's really important to kind of get an understanding of, of this landscape and also to understand that this is not a flash in the pen moment. Like if anything, I think even despite the kind of hyperventilating excitement around this topic, I think people are still underestimating it. I, I would go so far as to venture that we're seeing a, a new substrate for a new kind of internet emerge. And I, I think that the, the basic principles of a lot of these tools will just exist in everything at some point. It's so crazy to me to be reminded that OpenAI is funded by Elon Musk. Because I feel like that's kind of been a little bit like lost in conversations around it. Yeah. And, uh, and to be fair, I actually don't know the extent. I don't believe he is that involved on the day-to-day. I do know that Sam Altman of Y Combinator is very involved on the day-to-day and that you know there is a kind of funded relationship with with Microsoft. But I do know that Musk was one of the group that, that started the organization. And, and its initial goal, which I think to give them some credit, was to attempt to play some kind of a leadership role in a new and emergent space. And even though I mean, we could have a very long conversation about the pros and cons of certain stances they've taken. I do actually believe that they are doing their best to be responsible stewards of at least aspects of this technology. Quite whether they will be successful or not is another question. But for example, I know of, of many people there whose you know, whole job is spent thinking about the potential implications of the latest breakthrough 
in AI, which may or may not be happening within their own research labs. And I'm, I'm very grateful that they're, they're doing it and that they're publishing on it, irrespective of the fact that some of the decisions they make, I might differ in my approach to, if that makes sense. But yeah, Musk's involvement with that, you're right, it doesn't get brought up very often. And that could just be honestly because he plays maybe a a very, very kind of removed role in, in the organization at large. I, I expect that's likely why. That makes sense. And what is it about Dolly 2 that you think made it the sort of focus of this moment or sparked such a moment? Like, are people developing similar tools, but they just happen to like get this more advanced version of the tool to market first? Yeah, it's a combo. So in the last year, I forget exactly when it was. It was like January 2021. OpenAI released this library Clip. And to really narrow it down, basically, Clip is this model that allows you to connect text to uh, labeled images. And so, for example, when you're typing the word dog, Clip will be able to identify in latent space, you know, what a dog is, the characteristic elements of a dog. And so once that code was released, there was a lot of kind of grassroots energy. I bring up someone like Ryan uh, Adverb, who we actually had on the podcast around about this time, who made the step to connect the clip library to an open image generation model, uh, a library. And at the time, there was a lot of energy in discords. I first joined the Latent Visions Discord, which was Ryan's creation, but there were a bunch of others of people going and using Google Colab infrastructure, which is like basically a way to run Jupyter through the browser, basically, basically a way to run machine learning codes as if you were working on a Google Doc or something. And so there was all this excitement and energy amongst people who were, you know, prepared to go a little bit deeper to like experiment with stuff. And what OpenAI did, beyond them also kind of contributing a lot of of code to some of these systems that people were tinkering with, is a couple of things, right? Like with Dali, it became the first or one of the first, let's say, because Mid Journey was also kind of out at this time and a few others. But uh one of the first ways that people with no patience for diving into code or figuring out how Colab notebooks work could just plug and play around with this. But also what they did was they applied an insane amount of compute. So basically an insane amount of you know, processing power to training really complex image models. And so even to this day, Dali 2 is by far the most powerful, some might argue not the most aesthetic, but by far the most powerful image generation system at people's fingertips. Powerful in this context meaning what? Powerful meaning you can kind of do more with it because it just, the breadth of its outputs is thus far unsurpassed. And then on top of that also, you know, OpenAI is a very kind of prestigious, uh, prominent institution. And there was not a great amount of, let's say, public interest in stuff that was happening on smaller grassroots discords. And of course, when OpenAI comes out and says, look, we're releasing this thing and you can sign up for it and use it immediately, that then becomes a, a bigger news story than, you know, than smaller kind of like subcultural things that, that were happening. And, and that space in a way has also kind of shifted more recently. There's uh, people who are, are quite close to us actually at, at Stability AI, which is offering kind of open source alternatives. They basically have open sourced the process by which you can develop these systems. You know, they've released a stable diffusion, which is, and again, an incredibly powerful image generation system. 
which anybody can kind of use to spawn up their own app. And you're seeing now like 50, 100. I mean, it's crazy. Like there's a new app dropping a day using Stable Diffusion. It's being integrated into uh, Photoshop, for example, I saw yesterday. So Dali kind of emerged to kind of own a moment for a wider public, but the development of new tools and the spreading of new tools is not slowing down there. And actually, you know, with the rate of change that we've seen over the past five or six years, I think that a lot of these systems may well be redundant in a couple of years. We're just going to see more and more and more and more and more. Yeah. And so again, it's up to the individual where you sit on the scale of being excited and or daunted. But one thing we can be sure about is it's here. I fall on the the cautiously optimistic side that I think it's it's wildly exciting. You know, like Holly was saying this the other day, but it's like, yeah, you know, we got to read books about the early people experimenting with synthesis techniques or sampling techniques or, you know, early computer art or or whatever. And like, this is that moment for the next hundred years. It, genuinely, like th- this is that new substrate uh, of you know, whatever these techniques are, some variation of them is going to play a role in in how art and media functions for the rest of our lives and careers you know and so so i'm i'm incredibly excited by it even if there are aspects of it that i would like to go in maybe a different direction than they appear to be going currently yeah it's a it's it's a big deal well in the vein of it being pretty cool and you're being excited about it can you tell us about some of the experiments that you've conducted with ai over the years what was exciting to you about these tools specifically and creatively speaking and also what has been specifically worrying about them? Yeah. So in about 2016, we started playing around and the initial idea was obviously like my partner Holly's focus has mostly been on the voice. And so we're like, oh, cool. Like, can we get again to sing? You know, that was the first challenge being like, okay, can we figure out a way to get some of these systems to be able to, to produce music and, and, you know, a bit of a backstory there, you know, when most people talk about automation in music, oftentimes they think about really easy to manipulate files like MIDI files, you know, because MIDI is just kind of like tablature. It's just numbers, you know, and early on, Holly and I were, were far more interested in generating audio. And so we're like, okay, what would this look like? For the record, Proto that we released in 2019, you know, we put together this choir and then we trained a neural network on the choir and on Holly's voice and on my voice and then had, we called it an AI baby spawn kind of singing, which took a really took a lot of time to kind of get done, but it ended up being really cool and fun and interesting. But at the time, the other thing that kind of like we became aware of and were kind of trying to shout about was that these systems, they learn from large amounts of human contributed data, you know. And so it, it became really clear that that was going to become an issue. That was something to deal with, right? Like our particular approach toward it for Proto was we're only going to train on people who consent. And so we train on people we know. We train on people who we could compensate for the information that they contributed to us. We held, for example, a couple of really large, like hundreds of people training ceremonies where we were explaining to people being like, hey, like, you know, we've got this ensemble and the ensemble is like singing in call and response with people. And then they sang back to us and we captured their voice and then used that to train Spawn. And also some songs on the record were, were produced from those training rituals. And so we're like, okay, well, here herein lies the conundrum, right? Herein lies probably the balance. And actually, if you go on Twitter right now and look at the culture wars, this balance I'll describe is pretty much what you're seeing with, with this new culture war that's kind of emerged around AIR, which is like, on the one hand, these tools are incredibly powerful. They are more powerful, I would argue, than the breakthroughs in synthesis or sampling in terms of their dexterity and what eventually you'll be able to do with them. And on the flip side, 
they present all kinds of sticky new problems about, you know, attribution, payment, fairness, consent. And so we tried to synthesize that into like a coherent approach for a proto. Um, but since then, we've done a lot more work. Like we started this project, Holly Plus, which is kind of like Holly's digital twin, where you know, on the face of it, we're kind of releasing models of Holly's voice for people to play with. But it may be the more interesting part is um, on the back end where we're trying to think of systems of like, okay, well, if you can make anything using someone's voice, how would we manage that in a way that was consensual and fair to people, right? So with Holly Plus, we've run a lot of experiments of like Holly offering the voice and then, you know, approving certain derivative works that are made with her voice. And when those works are sold, Holly receives a small percentage for donating her voice to those productions. And so in this time, you know, we've had to come up with a lot of new things like kind of new economic systems, which I think are pretty good to be honest. honest, Like we'll see, we'll see how these are stress tested, but I think that basic idea of saying, okay, well, rather than kind of running away from this problem, the best way to do this is to kind of proactively lean into it and think of ways that artists can be encouraged to share these aspects of themselves in conditional ways. But we've also had to come up with a bunch of vernacular. So for example, we use this term spawning as opposed to sampling. Basically just clarify that like the older IP approach that we're maybe used to from the sampling wars or the Napster wars doesn't really work super well in this new space. So we kind of have to come up with new vernacular and new like ideological approaches. And so for example, spawning is you know generating works using an AI system uh, based on trained information, and that trained information can be a style or a, a person or or something along these lines. We basically just think like the scale of these tools is so significant that it kind of warrants a bit of a clean slate approach to how we think about them because it doesn't really work to treat complex multimodal AI systems the same way as a sampler. And trying to get that point across is going to be troublesome and some people are going to reject it because we carry a lot of intellectual baggage from 20th century kind of IP wars, but we kind of have to get there because this is a whole new beast. So how did the compensation work again, that if people created a composition with her voice, Holly would receive a percentage or the small fee or? Yeah. So so the way it worked with Holly Plus, and, and I should say up front that I think really where we need to get is we need to get to a place where each artist can kind of determine how they want their training data or their AI models to work. And so this is just how we chose to approach it. But basically, you know, Holly released an instrument that included an AI model of her voice. The first one is trained on her processed voice. So it's a little less kind of, let's say, realistic than the other ones that we have coming. The next Holly Plus voice, you can basically type anything and it sings exactly like Holly. It's really good. And these things are only going to get better. And so the idea was uh, let anybody use the voice, but establish a public identity. Holly chose to do this through the Ethereum network where there's basically one wallet that represents her identity. And so you can, if there's a bunch of material out there with Holly's voice, you can tell which stuff has been approved because it will be connected to that identity in some way as an approval mechanism. And then if that work ends up making any profit, so for example, if if a piece is sold, the condition is that 50% of those profits will go to the remixing artist or the person, the spawning artist who spawned something with her voice. 40% will go back into the maintenance and development of new tools so that 
more people can experiment with the voice and make work with the voice. And 10% of those profits go back to Holly for donating the IP and being permissive with it. And so people might choose to take completely different approaches, but that's what we did initially as an experiment of saying, this is actually kind of a, a virtuous cycle where we're not withholding the IP or like stopping people from experimenting. We don't care what people do with the voice unless there's profit made. And if there's profit made, there's profit shared that will go into producing more instruments so that more people can play with stuff and that Holly can get paid a little bit. And I believe that this approach of leaning into IP and coming up with what you think is the most fair compensation system, I think the way in which compensation works with machine learning models in future will rhyme with what we've done. It will certainly not be exactly the same, but it will look a bit like that because it kind of makes sense. So that's that's where we are with that specific Holly Plus project. But at the moment, we're working on some more tools basically to enable people to kind of come to their own conclusions about what they want to do. Because my personal position on a lot of this stuff and Holly shares it is a uh, Ultimately, it should be up to individual artists to determine how they want their IP and their their style played with. You know, that that's the world we need to get to. You can see why tools like Dolly and you know Midjourney, though this is more the visual side of things, um, are creating a kind of panic among some visual artists, graphic designers. I can go in and type into Midjourney, like produce a picture of a treehouse in the style of X artist. And then an image can be produced that is in that person's style. And then, well, depending on like the rules of the platform in which is created, I could go sell that work or use it commercially. I am using somebody's visual voice and that artist whose visual voice I am using is not getting a cut of things. Yep. So we have a lot of graphic artists, designers who are kind of unhappy about this and they're saying for a number of reasons like, uh-oh, like Dolly and these other apps are going to put people out of business. Um, and it seems like they're right to be worried about potential economic impacts. There's also like this idea that people will hire these professionals less often because they can create imagery so easily. But it's also hard not to read a bit of a like moral judgment maybe coming through when you see people arguing about it online, like this kind of idea that, you know, hey, like that's our territory. Like only people with a certain, you know, skill set or track record or credentials should be allowed to call themselves artist or maybe that only real artists can be trusted to wield these tools responsibly or something. Do you think that these worries about being put out of a job are warranted? And how do you think we will look back on this kind of panic decades from now? Yeah, I have a, a complicated position on it. I think that people people are right to be concerned. And they're right to be concerned because, as I said earlier, you know, I think that the Maybe the most analogous shift we've seen in recent history is this is kind of like the advent of digital. You know, you can imagine in commercial art fields, let's say graphic designers or, you know, commercial art workers, when the computer arrived and there were some people who were particularly good at the computer and that brought with it efficiencies. This is kind of like that, but I think even bigger. And so I think people are right to be concerned. And, and I also sympathize with those concerns. As I said, I mean, you know, we've been talking about this training data issue for six or seven years. 
let, let's also be clear that this goes far beyond just the visual, right? Like we will have text prompted audio music systems. I mean, there's things like OpenAI's jukebox that already exist. In fact, the first time we were ever in touch with OpenAI was to talk to them specifically about the provenance of training data for jukebox. This would be three or four years ago, where you can kind of generate music that kind of sounds like living artists. I've recently heard audio diffusion experiments that are way better, like really high sample rate. So th this is kind of coming for everything. And, and so, yes, absolutely. Particularly if you're coming at this cold, I can see why people are very concerned. That said, I think sometimes the conversation can be a little overblown for, for numerous reasons. I think, for example, that, you know, really, really easy generations. So I call it kind of the slot machine dynamic of, you know, typing in a prompt and getting an image out. I think there's a really short shelf life for that. I think that more realistically, what's going to happen is that this is just going to be a new tool that creative people have at their disposal to be able to prototype things really easily. But fundamentally, when you talk about a lot of commercial creative work, a lot of the times what people are paying for is distinction. And it's kind of the same with arts, right? It's like people who end up making a living from the arts for better or worse, right? And and many people have different perspectives on this, but, but, but ultimately you're kind of looking for people who are really good at something. And I think that the advent of these tools just kind of changes our understanding of what being really good means. And I don't see a world where all imagery in five years is going to look like a mid-journey generation. It's more likely what's going to happen is that positions that were already being displaced by cheap stock photography, cheap WordPress themes, the really lower end of the spectrum where people probably weren't paying individuals anyway, that stuff is going to start looking more custom. Because ultimately, if you're like a big brand or whatever, my argument would be that you're always going to want to stand out. And so in order to stand out, that is going to require some aspect of creative skill or distinction from the person there. And kind of like the advent of the computer, I think what will likely happen is, yes, like, the design or art directors within these organizations will probably also be fluent in these kind of spawning systems. Just as, you know, uh, inevitably at the turn of the century, art directors were likely fluent with Photoshop and other tools. That being said, I, I don't want to kind of minimize the concern because I think if you kind of cross your eyes a little bit, what's really happening is just an ambient awareness of a lot of people that things are changing. And to that end, I think they're absolutely correct. And I think what's most important to focus on is in one way kind of accepting that this is here. The reason I do that is not to be fatalistic, but also to, for example, let people know that if we are talking about the advent of a new internet and a new substrate for, for how media works, companies and states are now already kind of competing over how to encourage and incentivize organizations, developers working on this on a technical level to be able to do so unimpeded. The British government, for example, newly untethered from the EU, passed some laws suggesting that any company registered on British soil will be able to train on any data for commercial purposes. That's a big deal. You know, so for example, in some kind of nightmarish scenario that people most afraid of this could imagine, you could see, for example, in the next couple of years, a music service trained on the work of all living artists that doesn't attribute back to those artists and in fact kind of like genericizes the outputs right so it's like rather than listening to drake you're listening to canadian rapper or rather than listening to beyonce you're listening to you know r&b singer or something along these lines and yeah there are states coming forward saying you can just do that i don't have the power to stop that all is to say that when i say this isn't going away i'm not being fatalistic i'm just kind of telling people how it is so 
what I would argue is that, you know, our approach, I think, stands up, which is you, you have to factor a lot of these complicated issues and we're going to have to inevitably lean into it uh, and say, okay, well, if you're not going to stop this happening, what can we do to give artists, rights holders, creative people as much agency over their skills and the content they produce as possible? And also try and engender, as I said, you know, we're coming up with new vernacular, spawning, identity play is something else that we like to talk about, whatever. Like, come up with new vernacular and approaches what my close friend, the JMO, calls like a permissive IP approach that says, okay, well, how, how do artists lean into these developments and try and see the good in them and try and see how creative economies and the, the act of creating things is going to be impacted for the better as a result of these, these technologies being here. And so I think we only get there really through bringing people very rapidly up to speed with the state of affairs and also not bullshitting them. That's why I will never kind of sugarcoat the fact that I think this is going to be incredibly economically consequential one way or the other. But I also, I think the good news is I think that people should also have reason to, to believe that, that if they can think of better ways to make this work, that there'll be a lot of open ears. I can report that from speaking to a lot of people in the research community. Generally speaking, everybody kind of wants this to work out, but also everybody's in the same position being like, this is happening. Ah, it's happening. There's no putting this back in the box. And even if one state comes forward with kind of a more punitive approach to it, then another state will just see that as an opportunity. Like the 21st century is here, everybody, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so we're going to have to figure it out and, and make the best of it. And I think there's a lot of, lot of cool things that will come from this, not least just thinking on a, on a basic level of like how exciting it is for an entirely new suite of very powerful creative tools being available to everybody. Yeah, you raise a really good point and something that I think we've seen, you know, as you mentioned, like with any other kind of advance in digital technology, so many of these things, the knee-jerk reaction is to ascribe it to being good or bad, right? I mean, lo looking at the digitization of music, the rise of social media, and I, I just feel like that's reductive. It's not good or bad, it's happening and it's it's a paradigm shift, right? But it also poses that same kind of democratization dilemma where on the one hand, this is providing kind of unprecedented, you know, maybe creative accessibility Yep. Like cutting out yep. certain middlemen, certain, you know, Emily, like you were saying earlier, valuation of skill sets and access to education and all that. But, you know, on the other hand, it's like this extension of narrowing the window of kind of the scarcity model. But with that kind of democratization and like enhanced opportunity for expression and creativity and maybe even just like the advent of a new medium, I wonder, conversely, from a creative standpoint, what is at risk of being lost with, for example, visual artworks? Like, where do the expressive possibilities of this technology end and the limitations begin? Like, when does it start to maybe become a feedback loop of ideas? Speaking personally, I think what is lost in some senses, you know, going back to this thing of saying we need new vernacular, new stories, I, I think also the acceleration of these kind of tools is also kind of just accelerating the kind of demise of old stories, right? And this is actually good news, right? Like, if you were to come, let's say, in the image generation space and come with the argument of, you know, okay, well, this is a, a loss of authenticity because we're losing the hand of the artist and we don't know where things are coming from and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, in honesty, we've, we've been in this process for 50 years. I was using this example on Twitter the other day. Like, I know a lot of people in contemporary art. If you walk through a big contemporary art museum or gallery, like, you're seeing a load of works that were created by teams of people. They were often kind of prompted through fabricators, right? Like, the artist is like, I've got this cool idea. Like, I want to build a big glass cube, like 
sends off an email, you know, typing the instructions in the email, and then a bunch of people they've probably never met construct it for them, stick it in the gallery, and stick their name on it. Right? It's like, how is that different to a prompted system? You know, I mean, so, so in a sense, I think I think just speeding this up and like making it kind of available to everyone is kind of killing some of our darlings of these kind of like narratives about authenticity or, or whatever that we've kind of inherited from from a more analog time for better and worse but i think we also learned that like you know when we talk about art or music we're talking about so much more than actually the content i always like to give the example of, of like djing right djing in actuality it turns out because you're often just like kind of playing music of other people djing is is already really easily automatable Right. You know, I could five years ago probably write a small system to do a fairly decent job about mixing tracks together in a club or whatever. Yeah. Or Spotify's playlist algorithm. I mean, that's another version of that. We don't go to clubs to see DJs to just listen to tunes mixed well. You know, this is a story that maybe in the 60s or 70s we did that was like new or, or whatever. But we don't really do that. We go there to see other people. We go there because actually the person playing means something to us or, or connotes something. We want to be a part of something, you know, and in actuality, automating away some of these systems as we have been slowly, slowly, slowly over the decades doesn't really change all that much. And I, and I think it's kind of the same with a lot of art that we value is like, you kind of want to hear what that person has to say, you know, and so it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like this whole idea of fetishizing virtuosity, we're not like sitting here being like Ingwie Malmsteen is, is the greatest musician of all time or whatever, right? Like. <laughs> We can appreciate that he's a very virtuosic musician, but it's not really what we're in it for, you know? So, so if anything, I think that these automation systems in a way, by removing a lot of the pretense around some of the manual elements that, that it takes to construct a piece of art, it reveals actually what we value about art, which is all the, the kind of social aspects, you know, the, the interpersonal identitarian often kind of aspects that is what we actually value about it, you know, and like the conceptual aspects that we actually value. And so Long story short, I think that by getting real about that, you know, the nature of what we consider art uh, will change, you know, or at least we'll refine it in a way because art is always changing in accordance with what people can do. And my argument here is, you know, that like we've already seen with, let's say, the advent of just ubiquitous music, for example, that like, you know, the more ubiquitous art and music is, the more purpose and vision become scarce, right? The more people doing something the more difficult it is in a way to distinguish yourself. And actually that process of distinction tends to be what most people colloquially refer to as art. You know, like art is is aspirational. It's like, oh, this person did this really cool thing. They made this this incredible record that like perhaps only they could make, you know? And I think that that dynamic doesn't change in accordance with how easy it is to make generic art, you know? Like I, I tend to definitely fall on the glass half full side of this because I, I just don't think art is going to be you know, I think art will be changed by this, but I don't think it's threatened by it. You know, there's this story in the news, which I actually thought was a ridiculous story, where like someone, you know, posted a, a mid-journey image to a county fair and ended up winning it. And the New York Times sent like a journalist there and the guy was like, it's the end of art, man. Like the, the robots won or whatever. And I'm like, well, number one, right? Like we don't go to county fairs to like learn about the, the latest consensus on what great art is. <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous. But number two, it was interesting to look at the other prizes that were given at that county fair. And there was one for like fruit canning. Same. I, I'm not used to hearing stories about high level art discourse coming from places that also give prizes for fruit canning. Not that there's anything wrong with fruit canning, but that adds to why I think the story is absurd. Uh, people, and you get these, a lot of fear mongering about this stuff because it, it generates clicks. But also fruit canning is a great example, right? Like machines are really good at fruit canning, but people still do it. 
you know, and, and clearly they do it well enough that there's prizes given for it because I'm sure there's some people who get a lot of joy out of that and they get a lot of joy out of, you know, coming together with other people and showing what they've done. So, so in a way, art is so much more than this kind of crazy you know, optimization. It doesn't matter if a machine could do it faster or better. It, that's only really one part of what we value about it. So in terms of thinking about what's lost, there are many important things to consider in terms of the economic fallout of this, like things like profit sharing systems that I think are absolutely vital going forward. And this is also something that's going to be really difficult to enforce, but I think ultimately is kind of where we need to go as a society to make this work out well. But I don't see much being lost. If I were to paint a, one kind of nightmare scenario, just to entertain one of those for a second. One thing I do think that will happen as a result of this is that, you know, we've seen over the course of Web 2, the rise of kind of like the super individual celebrity, right? The generally very attractive, like the popular cool kid in school with access to Instagram or TikTok. There is going to be probably some conflict around that when all of a sudden those characters no longer need to employ anybody to produce decent enough music or to produce decent enough art. So I do wonder what a scenario looks like where Logan Paul, you know, can put paintings on a wall and release an album every couple of weeks. And, you know, what does that do to the kind of creator artistic economy when basically the most popular or the most attractive or the most relatable, I think it was just the biggest part, the most relatable people all of a sudden have access to tools that, that let them be even more kind of monopolistic over attention. That I think is actually something to be concerned about for industries, let's say like the music industry or like the art industry where, you know, at some point, maybe some distinction is going to have to be made that says, actually, we're here for this purpose, not necessarily to support the most popular thing because the most popular thing will likely become more and more and more dexterous with less impediment as a result of these automation tools. I think that that is a scenario that if we're talking about broader culture, uh, should be there to be reckoned with. Like, what does it mean when the popular kids who have access to money or resources or right. huge followings just get to kind of be HBO now? Right, right. At some point, we're going to have to make, again, a collective determination that the point of art is, again, not about supporting the most popular or attractive thing, but instead about supporting geographical based scenes or, you know, we want to hear from the average individual or we want to hear from you. At, at some point, there's going to have to be a, a, some kind of a line in the sand drawn in order to, re to retain some of the sanctity of our institutions or music scenes or, or, or whatever that I do think has been eroded by Web2. Yeah. Well, I guess that's also kind of what I'm wondering about in terms of limitations with AI. I mean, I, and, you know, please push back on this, but I feel like it's inherently limited to ideas that are already in existence, right? That's what it's drawing from. I'm just thinking of even like from playing around a bunch on Mid Journey, it'll be like, you know, something, something prompt I'll come up with, like in the style of Giorgio de Chirico, you know? Of course, this I'm just working within the limitations of the tech as it exists right now. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, where's the space for things that haven't yet been input into things that already exist in the realm of human ideas? Yeah, I mean, I do. But to play devil's advocate here, and this it probably touches a little bit on the organization we're starting, I could right now, with malicious intent, write a bot to crawl the Instagram accounts of any young up-and-coming artist related to a particular school or scene. Anytime a new image is posted that gets input into training data, 
that contributes to a model of my own devices that only I have access to, which means that fundamentally with very, very short turnaround, I would be able to ape the style of anything new being dropped online within probably 24 hours. I think in five years time, there will actually be companies doing this. So what you're saying is true, that it can only really learn from things that have existed. But De Kiriko has existed for, what, a century or more? I think that the the turnaround time of what exists is going to be minimal and at very low cost pretty soon. And you can use the analogy here of like, you know, a good friend of mine, Julian, was you know one of the people behind C-Punk or whatever. And it's like, C-Punk was this little micro scene online. And then Rihanna's on Saturday Night Live or something with a C-Punk set, you know, and, and that's kind of the way that scenes have always worked a little bit, right? It's like, People on a more grassroots level come up with new stuff and then people with resources see it working and are like, okay, cool. Well, if we just did that and poured money on it, I mean, Holly and I joke, have joked about this in our art career, we're almost kind of like R&D for bigger fish, right? So it's like we try something out and come up with a new idea and then they view from afar and go like, oh, well, that one's working a little bit and it seems like people are into it. So if we could just take that and, and do that, like imagine that on like a 24-hour turnaround and that's a reason to be concerned, right? Particularly when, as I said, it's not just about kind of bigger fish taking from smaller fish in an artist context, but also in a company context, right? You can imagine companies that just have bots out there that, you know, anytime this Instagram account follows this other Instagram account, that other Instagram account is, is added to the library and these models are, are training in real time so that that company can, with no expectation of, of profit share, kind of ape uh, styles being dropped as they drop. So what I will say again, not to sugarcoat it, is that like the protectability of things like style, voice, image, likeness is going to be really difficult. And legal precedent, copyright doesn't help in this domain, particularly not when states like the UK, for example, are also just saying like go to town. And so we really do need a different approach toward toward this. The good news, of course, is that for a lot of artists, the reason we like them is because they're them, you know, and actually when we talk about also popularity dynamics, like, you know, I was kind of presenting it in a negative light earlier, but it, there's also a positive light of there, right? A lot of the joy of art is supporting people you like or who live in an area that you live in. And, and those dynamics will will never disappear. But But I don't want to present any false hope related to the protectability of style or the limitations of these systems, because I think I've already seen stuff on on the research level, for example, like video generation trained on scraped videos that you know, it reminds me a little bit of 2015, 2016, where I would look at AI images and you'd have to squint your eyes a little bit and be like, oh yeah, this is going to get really good one day. And it eventually did. When we're talking about music, video, kind of more complex, data-rich inputs, I see examples today that are basically the same where I'm like, it's a matter of time. I mean, whether it takes 18 months or five years, these things are going to get incredibly good. So better, better to prepare now and start thinking about what a world looks like where, you know, that's just the situation that maybe entertain kind of a false sense of security that, oh, you know, it's just good at producing 1024 by 1024 JPEGs right now. I'm like, nah, this is going to be everywhere. In the next decade, which could mean the next three years, at the rate of change, it's really difficult to call, but like, we're going to be prompting whole movies. circle back to your essay with Holly, the infinite images and the latent camera piece, which I thought was really great. 
Are there similar sort of moral panics that have happened in the history of art that we can compare this moment to? What ended up happening and what do you think will happen here? Like, for example, photography. Yeah, totally. Oftentimes when people talk about these kind of multimodal AI systems, they tend to use surrealism. I think the line in the piece that we put is that anything new is often surreal, so people associate it with surrealism. And it also helps that one of the earliest kind of image generation systems, Deep Dream, was kind of playing on this language of surrealism. But we actually found it far more interesting to look at the pictorialists. Basically, the advent of photography, right? Initially, photography was was a field of scientific research, right? It was the domain of kind of scientists and tinkerers whose objective was to produce a reflection of the world. The analogy here would be kind of AI training set, right? And so they got really good at it. And then you had like the Kodak camera, which became the first kind of at-home personal camera. And people started using it. And then people started kind of breaking it in a sense. And the pictorialists are particularly interesting because they were the first art movement to take this scientific field of photography and try and be subjective and expressive with it. And we draw this analogy, one, because at the time the same debates were happening. They were like, well, this isn't art. You know, uh, there were also lots of people in the photography community who were pissed because they're like, well, this doesn't look like photography because it's not, you know, the pictorialists would do all kind of cool stuff. Like they would bring in practical lighting effects and like make a tree look like a cloud and, you know, get really creative with it to a lot of consternation. And of course, all of that was silly because, because what they were really doing is just saying, well, once you put tools in people's hands, you can't tell them what to do with it. And that's actually where art starts to happen, right? People break things and they come up with their own analogies and they start being creative with it. And, and it's very analogous, I think, to what's happened with these GANs and, and, and AI image systems is initially for the past 20 years or something, the goal was if we have a training data of a bunch of dogs, can we produce a really good picture of a dog? And that was a really hard research challenge. And it's kind of like photography. It's like, can we reflect the reality, at least the internal reality of these AI systems in the output image. And that's why we call it the latent camera, because it's kind of like a camera in the latent space of the AI. And then we got there. And and now, you know, where we went afterwards was like, okay, now we can do that. It's pretty boring if you have like, you know, 10,000 pictures of a dog. It's pretty boring to just produce loads of dogs. Now, by combining things and breaking things, which, which a lot of research has been doing in the past few years, it's becoming this way more sub- subjective kind of expressive medium. And in the short term, uh, that looks a lot like people being like, oh, cool, I can make a dog on a rocket in the style of Monet or whatever. And you're like, cool, that's great. That's that's breaking with reality a little bit because you're getting to express what's on your mind. Um, but I don't think that that will stop. And I think just like with the camera, what's just going to happen is these kind of multimodal systems are just going to be integrated into practices. And you're going to see all kind of crazy shit like that. It's going to get way wilder. Um, and so our fundamental our fundamental point in the essay is, you know, you can draw these analogies, but really the, the great lesson to be learned is just that as a species, when we get a tool, we tend to just kind of integrate it, it then integrates into the background and it just changes how we communicate. And, and I think that's very much going to be the case. I think in, in 10 years time, we will think nothing of expressing ourselves in increasingly idiosyncratic ways using multimodal AI systems. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, in that process, there's going to be the vast majority of people are going to do things in kind of a similar way. And that might end up just being like a standard for, you know, how, how text communication works, how, you know, TV works or whatever. And then there's going to be always a minority of people who do it in really wild and radical ways. And those are probably going to be people we, we say, or, you know, we, we mint or coin or entitle enshrine as like 
the visionary artist, you know, because um, there's so much more you can do. And, and you know, another analogy, right, sampling, there's 100,000 tracks a day that are made, you know, making generic techno music with sample packs that people downloaded, where you like take the kick drum and you put it on the grid. We don't confuse those people with Jay Dilla. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're both technically sampling, right? But but they're not doing the same thing, right? The reason why we revere someone like Jay Dilla is he has this whole world. Think of like a fly low or something. Who mm-hmm. also did this with samples. This is a good analogy, yeah. Yeah, he has this whole world that he built that's very idiosyncratic. Like you, you hear a Flylo track, you're like, "That's Flylo," or you hear a track that sounds like Flylo, and you're like, "That kind of sounds like Flylo," right? Because he broke it, made it made way more syncopated, processed it in this particular way, and exactly the same thing's going to happen with these tools. It's like a world that you experience that could only have been created by that person, you know. And so that's why I'm not scared and more excited. The challenge more is to just like get people on board and familiar with the concepts and then get tools in their hands so they can start breaking them and experimenting with all of the different shit you can do with them. And trust me, you can do so much more with this than you could do with a, <laughs> an analog sampler or like, you know, you can do so much more. And I can't hear an argument that says that that's bad for art, irrespective of the fact that like it's going to be rocky because this is a big shift, you know? Yeah. And one thing I was also thinking about when I was reading the piece was photography wasn't like the end of painting. Like you could say, oh, you know, painting for centuries had been focused on, you know, how do we capture reality accurately in painting? And then after photography arose, it sort of just pushed painting into this whole other direction where it began interrogating like notions of sight and vision and breaking down, you know, the, the visual world. Um, so it will also maybe be interesting to see how not just like people are using the tools themselves, but how it is pushing other forms of expression in different directions. I think you're totally right. And exactly. And how many painters right now are greatly advantaged by using cameras or imaging systems in their process? Like everyone, you know, and it's, it's exactly the same. Like painting's really cool. It's a really cool thing to do. It's dimensional. You can tell the difference between a painting and a print, right? You could say the same in music. I mean, there's a reason we started a choir around about the time that we started making singing neural networks. Like no one wants to go in a room and just hear a computer make a bunch of choir sounds. You know, like choir is like, I think it's one of the biggest hobbies in the United States because like you want to be in a room with people singing. Like you want to be painting things. You want to be touching things. And these tools are actually really, really useful as auditioning systems. You know, it's like, think about, you know, the, the benefit to writer's block, the benefit to, I mean, we've been doing this a little bit with some of the music. It's like, there are models there where it's like, where would I take this? If I train my own model and I only have access to that, like I've got this kind of loose idea, like maybe I can audition a couple of directions this will go in order to kind of help me with a little breakthrough in the studio or something like that. There's, there's so many ways in which this will be integrated and so many strange ways in which this will be integrated. I mean, Holly recently did Ted showing off the kind of live Holly Plus system that we made that lets people sing in her oh, voice. Oh, yeah, I saw really that. Good. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like this, but, this you know, giant man, like, singing in her voice. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's cool. And you're just like, well, you know, now we can do that. I mean, you can also, we can sing as a violin. But even crazier, it's like, what if you sing in the higher end, it's a violin hybridized with a bit of Holly voice. And then on the low end, you have, like, the sound of a trash can, uh, with a, you know, and it's like, I, I think that anybody who really gets a kick out of playing with things is going to get a huge kick out of all these tools. The, the great shame in the short term is that I think the easy story is this replacement narrative. And I don't want to 
dismiss some valid concerns there. In fact, as you know, as we'll probably discuss, like we're starting an organization to help with aspects of that, but you can't lose sight of just how cool this is. All we need to do is figure out the issue of consent because I think that's a fundamental. Um, we need to figure out uh, uh, yeah, how to be fair, how to try and think of systems in which the biggest fish doesn't just take all the, all the money or all the attention. Um, but I don't think there's going to be a scenario where in the future, like all the people who get a kick out of hanging out with each other in space and making crazy stuff, just sit at home generating, you know, a thousand songs a day just to listen to, like, you know, g- give art more credit than that. You know, like give, give humans more credit than that. Like we desire way more from art. Let's think more instead about how these tools can be integrated, which is where I think ultimately it's going to go. Another thing that I've been struck by, I haven't actually used Dolly, but I'm pretty into mid-journey. And I have a lot of friends who are interested in it as well. And I've been struck by like people are really falling down the rabbit hole with these tools. And I know some people who say like, oh yeah, I spend hours a day in this sort of interaction with these machines and like testing minute variations of different prompts and i've done that (laughs) yeah yeah we probably we all have and and you know even like mid journey is constantly giving workshops on how to learn the language of these technologies there are people who they're doing stuff that I can't even follow. Like the prompts are complicated and elaborate. And it yeah. almost seems like there is, it is not necessarily something that lacks skill. It actually seems like you might be, need to be highly skilled and kind of study this stuff a lot in order to really be able to use the tool in the way that you would like. And in a way that specificity creates its own kind of artistic vernacular. Yeah. You have to like really actually articulate your ideas to a high degree of specificity that's beyond just like putting a sentence in a prompt, which is that's art that that's artistic expression, right? Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I'm and I'm wondering, like, yeah, could we also describe some of this behavior as just, you know, not even just a tool, but a new form of artistic expression or maybe kind of like an art movement that has emerged unique to this time in response to this technological moment? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, a great, um, a great guy, Johannes, who's a Swedish researcher and artist who coined the term promptus. This was in the old light and visions discord. Um, we actually had a, a podcast a long time ago discussing promptism as kind of a new thing. And, and, and undeniably it is. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a longer conversation to be had about, you know, uh, what, what, works come out of those communities that are distinct and interesting and and as you said there's always a gradient there's always a there's always a curve there's always people who are doing wilder stuff than the next person and that's that that that's standard but but yeah i think that prompts themselves i think will be an aspect fundamentally connecting the way in which we we fluidly tend to express ourselves which tends to be through language oftentimes with the ability to generate something for people to look at or experience or watch or or whatever is a huge upgrade, you know, and, and, and we're going to see more of that. Like, I, I think we're what, six months away from, you know, text message systems, integrating, prompting, um, you know, we're, we're like a, another iOS update away from that probably being experimented with. We're, you know, another probably few months to a year away from Google image search 
kind of being Google image generation. You know, they have their own imaging system that's very, very good. So I think this this is just going to become more and more standard. And as these systems get more sophisticated, it, it will change. But the fundamental interaction or the fundamental kind of habit of being able to just generate whatever whatever is on your mind at any point in time is not going away. You know, actually, our collaborators on this organization, Spawning Wolf Bear, Patrick and Jordan, um, were the first to do kind of Discord jams with VQGAN, which later Midjourney kind of popularized, where you have a bot in there and you've got like groups of people all collaborating in real time on different things. And it's like, yeah, like I think there's a new habit, right? It's like the campfire story becoming like a multimedia experience is going to be a thing, maybe in a year, maybe in 18 months, you know, what, I don't know. But like, but, but you can you can just see where this is going. And, and there's a great amount of joy and dexterity that comes from, you know, from from people just 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 having access to to, to the ability to do that, I, I think it's 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 a huge net positive. Um, and quite where it falls on the scale of like a new artistic movement, or you know what qualifies distinction in that world, and is all a matter of debate. But it's it's here, and I respect it. And so, in some total, this is absolutely a, a paradigm shifting uh, moment, and it it will play a role in media for the rest of our lives and, and going forward. This is just here now and it will stay, you know, um, and it's exciting. And, and yeah, I mean, and, and I'm glad that you all have been playing around with some of these tools because, because once you do that also just becomes a bit clearer. So of course we've been talking a lot about these very real concerns that this tech, you know, despite the possibilities will kind of inevitably be exploited and monopolized by capitalist interests and, outweighing the artistic possibilities that might unfurl alongside of it um you know we talked earlier about like you know you know photography versus painting being kind of like an and not an or you know i'd say a counter to that is like journalism versus you know social media and the internet like that has been more of an or (laughs) than an and right so um do you agree that that's inevitable and what steps might be taken to curtail or prevent this. You had mentioned to us earlier before we started recording that you and Holly had actually been recently invited to Brussels to discuss AI policy. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that that's very relevant and well put. I mean, the same kind of nightmare scenario I brought up earlier of like writing a bot to crawl Instagram, you could do that with the Substack, right? And just be like, okay, let's make the automated times that's free to read and it subscribes to all the Substacks and sells ads and basically just produces generic versions of of articles that humans made. You could do that probably today. Uh, sorry to sorry to <laughs> release that into the world, but like if I was malicious, you could probably experiment with that today. And that's a problem. Uh, but again, it comes down to what we value, right? And and fundamentally, this is what one of the worries. And you're right to bring it up with with Web two, right? Is like the kind of popularity contests. In some ways, the race to the bottom of Web two, the devaluing of this sophisticated human tradition of journalism or writing or literature or music, this kind of like race to the bottom of cost cutting inefficiencies and, and, you know, producing genericism. Um, if we're in that habit of not valuing great writing and not incentivizing it and not encouraging and nurturing it, then yeah, that we have a problem. Um, and, and I, and I won't sugarcoat it because I think that those automated systems will exist, but if anything, what one hopes is that, the automation of such things just accelerates the conversation toward a real conversation that we all need to have about what we value and why we value it. And that then brings me back to the social and back to saying, no, actually culture is about how people feel. And it's about valuing distinction and valuing voices that went to the place and talked to the people. 
And you can only cost cut to such an extent before we just all suffer, before we're all impoverished by cost cutting systems. And so maybe automation is the lever to to, to trigger that awareness in people. Uh, maybe that's me being too optimistic. But I think on the policy level, there are things that, that can be done um, at, at, without wanting to go into to too much detail about it. I don't think that the answer is to lean on very outmoded ideas of copyright or takedowns or you know that didn't work for example with the the eu a lot of their gdpr measures were kind of well-intentioned but didn't really end up doing much um and it's very difficult in a multi-state theater where you know different countries are competing and the internet is obviously this global entity it, it, it's a really complicated thing but i think that the, the best chance that we have actually is for cultural participants to level up, start coming up with better ideas than the worst ideas and start to defend them and qualify them to other cultural actors so that we can reach some kind of consensus on how we actually want this to go. And fundamentally, that again comes down to values. Uh, it comes down to values and habits that we have. Um, you know, I enjoy subscribing to you all. You know, like I subscribe to a lot of things, but I do so because I think that culture is important and I understand that if I don't pay for it, it dies, you know. I think that automation systems are going to really push us all to making that decision. But on policy level, it's going to be really complicated. And my only words of advice there is that this has to be treated like a new problem, you know, and, and Holly's also written a great deal about this. Like we can't drag up 20th century IP war ideologies and fights again over this because they, they just don't fit. We kind of need a clean slate conversation about this. And in order to do that, we need a lot of people to become informed about the particularities of how these systems work, um, the organizations involved and their pros and cons, um, the, the state level kind of oversight over this stuff. And so, yeah, in starting the organization, that's kind of the what we're attempting to do. Obviously, we, we come with the, with the great benefit of being quite um, well-versed in this world and also knowing a lot of the players in this world who are making some decisions on this. Um, and so, so our goal with that is to is to jump forward and say, well, okay, we think we have some ideas for how this could thrive uh, in a way that honors artists and individuals' wishes. And you know, so far the responses we've been getting from people have actually been very encouraging and very sympathetic to concerns and, and our perspective on it. So, so th that aspect I'm, I'm very excited about. Can you give us a hint or a sneak peek about what you're working on over there? Yeah, totally. So we, we started this organization, Spawning. It's spawning.ai. Basically, we're building tools for artists to be able to own their training data, um, allow them to opt in and opt out of training of large AI models, and set permissions on how their style and likeness is used, and do things that might rhyme with what Holly did with Holly Plus, right? Like think of ways to, in a conditional environment, allow for other people to experiment with what you do, but with built-in attribution and, and profit sharing at the core. And ultimately, the belief is that we think that every artist should have some agency over how their work is ultimately used. For example, we've been speaking to the people at Stability, Emad uh, at Stability, who is very open to this idea of saying, well, yeah, look, if you can have artists come in and say that they don't want to be involved in 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 the trainings then we will honor that and that, i think that was a huge leap uh, a, a huge vindication for starting the organization and so so going forward i think ultimately so long as there is an environment of consent honored and engendered i think that those are the basic foundations that are needed for artists to actually get really excited about this and so long as that regime of consent is there I think ultimately more will want to opt in than opt out over time. 
but in the short term, I focus. So we built a site. Um, you can go to it now. It's called haveibeentrained.com. I'm actually going to launch it when I finish this call where you can, for example, see if your work or likeness is in the Lion B data set, which is one of the largest data sets that, for example, trained Midjourney and, and, oh, and wow. Stable Diffusion. Yeah, go to haveibeentrained.com. Um, and from there, you can also register whether you want to opt out or opt in to future model trainings. Um, and yeah, over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be dropping some more tools to let you actually do that in a more detailed way. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. But our approach is we think everybody should have the right to determine what happens with their work. And we want to try and give as many tools as possible to artists to be able to do that. And then our job on the back end is to speak to the research organizations and invite them to honor that. And, and fundamentally, I think that they will. Fundamentally, I think that it's in everyone's interest, actually, to take seriously the will of, of living artists. Um, and, and, and once that foundation is there, as I said, then we can start to get really excited about where this goes. So that's what we're doing. You know, I'm always on Twitter to talk about it. I, I, I'm bracing. Twitter's such a hard place to be releasing anything at the moment. I'm bracing myself for this announcement in like an hour. Um, like, <laughs> oh God. it's just chaos on there, you know. Probably. But like, I think fundamentally we've got a kind of idea, and we, we're fortunate because we've been involved so long. Watch all the spaces, everyone. <laughs> well, Matt. Thanks again for the great conversation, for taking the time. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah, I'm stoked. We're always happy to chat. It's very easy to chat with you all. You talk about fascinating things, and uh, I always love to check in on, on what you're all doing. So thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, as I said, if anyone's interested in this topic, I I get too much pleasure out of uh, discussing <laughs> it. So hit me up on Twitter. Uh, it's fascinating, right? It's like it's... The, as I said, this is our time. This is it's a crazy ass like lean into it, yeah. It's a big shift and we got it's it. a big shift and it's it's cool. It's interesting. That's it for our show. Today's episode was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. To dig deeper, head to our Substack. We've got lots of links. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share us with friends or on your socials to help support independent journalism. <laughs>